0: Thunder Media.
1: On this episode of Inside Motorsport, we remember a pioneer of Australian motorsport commentary, Keith Reagan, And we also have a look at the Speed Series down at Phillip Island. I hope you'll stay with us.
2: Welcome to Inside Motorsport, Tony Whitlock and Craig Gravel. And it's time to look back at Phillip Island and a wonderful series down there of the new speed series. But before we do that, we really like to pay our, our respect to a man who died yesterday, um, Keith Regan, who I have been in constant contact for probably the last eight years or more. Um, and Keith was a, a wonderful, wonderful man. He was 94 when he died. He uh, was one of the sharpest minds I've known, and even for his age, he had not dimmed at all. He was just as sharp and just as quick-witted as he was, I imagine, when he was in his 50s and 40s, and maybe even earlier. Um, it was a uh, sad that he's died, but I know that he went to a far, far better place. I uh, first met him through Will Hagen, who will give his tribute and memories of a man he knew far longer than I did. And one of the interesting things, Craig, is that uh, Will uh, was mentored by Keith Regan. He started doing commentary at Bathurst in 1956. He'd already been around the ARDC for a number of years. He'd been an entertainer and drummer. He'd traveled overseas. He was at Le Mans in the year of the Great Crash there when uh, so many people died in an enormous uh, Mercedes-Benz tragedy. But uh, Keith, through it all, loved motorsport. And as recently as uh, two weeks ago, I was ringing him and telling him what was on. And one of the great things about Keith was that he, even though uh, uh, he didn't know all the players, always he had a firm understanding as to what motor racing was about. And he would look at a scene and a scenario where two drivers were dueling, and he could give you a very uh, quick a summary of what had transpired, you know, the Kostecki-Shane Van Gisbergen incident in Perth. He would always have an opinion on those sort of things. And it's quite sad that he's died, but I'm uh, certain in my mind that he's gone to a better place than where he was. I, uh, I loved bringing him on a daily basis. One of the things that I enjoyed in life was telling him about cricket. He loved women's cricket as much as I do and loved watching motor racing as much as often. And uh, quite sad that he's died, but uh, um, it all happens to us again eventually. But let's talk about the Phillip Island. You saw some of it, Craig.
1: What I did see, Tony, was a remarkable conclusion to the Trans Am race. Uh, if Trans Am isn't the most entertaining circuit racing category in the country at this point in time, then... Gee, it must be a good racing series that I'm missing.
2: Indeed, indeed, Craig. Um, One of the most fantastic things was that a young man who actually won the weekend, won two of the three races and was second in one of the other races, um, Nash Morris turned 20 on Sunday and he is an absolute delight. I've known him probably since he was about three or four years old and he is... Quite magically, grown into be a wonderful racer. He certainly doesn't biff and barge. He uh, knows how to race closely, and he's got some of the some of the very best. As we we knew that Nathan Hearn was when he went off to America to race Trans Am. Uh, Nash showed himself up against the Owen Kellys, um, James Moffats, um, Brett Holdsworth, a, a bunch of guys, Ben Grice, a bunch of guys. Some of whom have very famous surnames. Interestingly, um, as does Nash as well. His father, of course, uh, a man who's won six 12 and thousand k races at Bathurst, and is one of the uh, amazing characters of motorsport. And Nash certainly follows in that trend.
1: And also, he's also very, very upset when you don't mention that he also won the five hundred kilometer race at Bathurst
2: when it was a
1: <laughs> when it was a genuine five hundred, not two two fifties over two days.
2: Okay. All right. Well, that's uh, Paul Morris. Uh, it was some great racing, and the, the wonderful thing that was that happened over the weekend: seventeen thousand people were there over the two days, and uh, bike crikey, they were served up some fantastic racing. I would suggest racing that was as good as anywhere else in the world, and better than most. It just, no matter what the what the category was, five thousands with Cooper Webster taking a round win, winning a couple of the races. And he was uh, shining brighter than uh, the likes of James Golding, Joey Mawson, Aaron Cameron, and it was a fantastic racing. Very few cars, unfortunately. There's some things working against them, but he showed that he's uh, only two race weekends in England so far with uh, GB4, but he is learning fast. He is a very good young driver. Uh, another of the categories that was uh, terrific to watch was TCR with Josh Buchan winning two of the three races in his Hyundai, the i30 sedan. And uh, he, again, is just one of those young drivers who is uh, not in the 20-year-old bracket or 19-year-old bracket. He's a bit older than that. But he's already very much earned his stripes and should be picked up by someone in uh, supercars to run as a co-driver. Great young driver. It was everywhere you looked, it was great racing. GTs, there were some terrific... uh, Stouches there, Um, a thoroughly enjoyable weekend. I'm sure that uh, while you haven't watched much of it, you'll uh, find that uh, the 5,000s and CCR and GTs cross all of them. And, of course, you've also got uh, production cars with uh, racing with GT4s. Uh, Some great racing there.
1: And, Tony, what I think is safe to say that people – are seeing drivers actually having rivalries and getting stuck into each other quite literally, uh, no, quite figuratively, uh, not getting to blows but threatening blows. It's making good clickbait to be able to uh, garner some more interest. But unfortunately, whilst they're behind that double paywall at Stan Sports, it's going to be very difficult to really get themselves a huge leg up
2: indeed it is um and uh, it is a pity um they do get some free to wear coverage uh, i think there was some on saturday for a couple of hours and there'll be a, a highlights package maybe this coming weekend but uh, it's well worth looking at and i certainly will be fronting up to winton to get the next round in uh, a couple of weeks time so that was uh, motorsport there um and while we're on the subject of motorsport and Keith Regan, I will just make a mention that something happened wonderful some years back when I first met Keith. He came to Bathurst. He, he wasn't sure he wanted to go there, but I convinced him to. He hadn't been there since 1971. So it took about some 45 or years to get him back there in about 2014. And I remember taking him to the Porsche tent which is no tent, of course. It's quite an elaborate corporate compound. And uh, he sat there having tea and scones with strawberry jam and cream and said, motor racing's covered a bit differently nowadays, isn't it? And he was a delight. I remember him sitting there, spending time with Jeff Slater at the techno team, um, learning about the way motorsport is engineered nowadays. We're learning how, how different it is with computers and all the things that go with it. And he was fascinated to see how it transpired that the sport which he has loved from the 1940s and 30s and how it has now evolved into something that uh, is quite sophisticated uh, on a very high level that runs around the world. Anyway, um, and here's uh, Will Hagen's tale of Keith Regan as he knew him.
1: Well, Will Hagen's sad news this week at the passing of a man who you... Well, had a lot to do with in your younger days of the career, Keith Rigg and <laughs> passing away uh, up at Tea Garden. He spent the later part of his life, but he moved right through New South Wales, calling motor racing events from, what, the early 50s?
0: Absolutely. Uh, he actually started, he was a musician, a drummer. And as Colin Piper, a retired uh, percussionist from the Sydney Symphony Orchestra said, another drummer gone. And uh, Keith had gone to England in the early 50s uh, with people like Bob Brown and various other great motorcycle racers heading for the World Championships. And uh, by that stage, he was involved because... He was, as I say, as a muso, he was used to performing in front of people, and he's watching the twelve, the 24-hour race, Australia's first ever 24-hour motor race, was a for uh, cars, one of three 24-hour races that they had at Mount Druitt, two were for motorbikes, but this was the 31st of January and the 1st of February, 1954, run by the ARDC, and... Uh, Keith was there with various other commentators. Well, he wasn't a commentator at that stage. And these guys are gabbling away in the 24 hour race. And they said, oh, need a rest. Keith, you're used to performing. Would you like to have a chat? So he started chatting and his his first motor racing commentary was, as I say, in that 24 hour race at Mount Druitt. It went on from there. He'd met Jeff Sykes when he was in England. And had um, got involved with Brooklands and uh, the BARC, which Jeff Sykes was involved with. And uh, when Warwick Farm opened, Keith Regan was the chief commentator and did a tremendously good job there. And uh, he was commentating at Bathurst as well, keen on cars and bikes, and uh, a terrific guy and a very, very good commentator with a good voice, understood pauses, and all the rest of it. But on top of that, a uh, good natural humour he was he could come up with some great lines and uh, a lovely guy to work with and to learn from
1: how did he influence the way you worked or performed as since we're going to use that uh, uh, analogy
0: well he did things that modern even the modern commentators don't do he wouldn't start a commentary at warwick farm until he had scratched off all any, the non-starters from the entry list in the program. He'd have uh, ticked them off as they went off on their warm-up lap, and then he'd say, oh, late scratchings are so-and-so and so-and-so, and he'd list all of those. Then the next requirement was, and he would already have done an idiot cheat, as he used to call them, where he put the, the car numbers down in numerical order. They mightn't necessarily be in numerical order in the program, but he put them down in numerical order, so he hand-wrote them before the meeting. And then, uh, again, before the race started, he insisted that he had beside him a lap scorer, because if somebody went off on lap seven and they were in third place, he wanted to know what grid position they started from, where they were on lap one, uh, whether they'd gone backwards or forwards or whatever, so he could tell the story. He was just so thorough and so detailed about, giving the crowd whom he respected because he knew they'd got off their tails, they'd come to the meeting, they'd paid money to get in and all the rest of it, and that they should be looked after and given as much information as possible. And as I say, there are modern commentators that still don't do what Keith Regan used to do.
1: It's interesting now that we're talking about a very analogue age where he's keeping (laughs) paper records and and trying to have uh, people giving him that information and and today we're we're flooded with information and uh, communication might of that information is may not be as clear as it was back then
0: well absolutely and again he'd have um uh, somebody up there with one or two stopwatches trying to time gaps between uh uh, cars and and uh Uh, whether, you know, the gap was decreasing or increasing and so on. And obviously, back in those simple days, uh, you could only do it every second lap. Um, So um, he worked very hard at it, and uh, as I say. and, And the other thing was he knew the people really well, and it was one of the things that brought him into conflict to a degree with Jeff Sykes because he'd grown up in an era When all these, well, I say all of them, but a lot of the motor racing guys and the really uh, good ones, the the standout ones, had nicknames. You know, um, Paul Samuels was Sartorial Sam and, and so on. And Jeff Sykes said no nicknames. You've just got to give their, their full proper name, which might have been correct at the time, but it stopped Keith from adding a lot of color to the way that he would refer to people. But I can remember too, when they had the first of a number, the Warwick Farm started a number of things. They uh, were early with Formula Ford and Formula V. They were early too with uh, historic racing and also with uh, ladies' races. And before the first lady's race, Keith came out with, no greater love hath any man than to lend his wife his racing car. And he, he, he could come up with these lines all the time. He was just terrific. And he'd done a lot of other things too. He did various other things later. He had a higher business. He worked actually uh, in my days with him at, at uh, Warwick Farm. He was a car salesman at Hardin & Johnson in Flinders Street in Sydney. Uh, selling Chrysler's, but um, uh, later times he uh, had a boat and, and bicycle rental business on Lake Macquarie, and he drove around uh, in a Rolls Royce for about twelve years—a second-hand one, not a particularly valuable one—but he really loved it. And he did a lot of travelling in cars. He lo- loved uh, getting around to various places, and even in his in quite recent times, tea gardens, he had a little bongo van motorhome home and he used to go off to to areas that he really liked and just sort of be there and look at nature and look at the way the land was and so on and uh, and, and here's the other thing uh, Craig he was 94 when he died and he he had two problems one mobility and that was what actually knocked him over because he had about five falls in quite recent times and it knocked him around physically um and he had no teeth. He hadn't looked after his his teeth and got false teeth or whatever. So he had difficulty eating anything that wasn't nice and, and soft and easy. But cop this. Ninety-four, no hearing aids, no glasses. And the same memory, um ability to speak, uh and to crack jokes and things and to know what was going on in the world. His brain was as good at ninety four as it had been at thirty four. He was he was an amazing guy.
1: I know you had kept in touch with him all that time, but did he do a lot of work around outside of New South Wales in the commentary in the commentary booths?
0: Not a great deal. Um, he'd done <laughs> he had done stuff at I'm trying to think now the P and circuit and the ABC actually uh, was getting him to. Um, uh, to commentate and he had a dreadful trouble between um, a recording, a recorder that they had and various other things. But the other thing was that he um, reckoned that the commentator, that the camera people should follow the commentator and that's not the case. The commentator's got to follow the camera people and talk about the picture that's served up to him. Uh, so he was wrong in that regard and so he never really transferred to television commentary despite as I say because of his reputation um the ABC showing some interest in him in early motor racing times but no he didn't uh he didn't do Sandown he didn't do Oran Park But he did Warwick Farm and he did Bathurst and he'd done Mount Druitt before that and he did Hill Climb Silverdale and uh various other New South Wales circuits, but no, he didn't branch out into other areas. They tended to have the guys that they particularly liked. I, I suspect, now that you ask the question, and as I think about it, I suspect he might have ranged up to Queensland to things like low places like lowwood for the Australian Grand Prix and things like that, and possibly even to Longford, but um, I don't think he ever did much in Melbourne, um, Longford, of course, being down in Tasmania.
1: And... Well, I mentioned commentary boxes, but in those days, it was less a box than a platform, wasn't it?
0: (laughs) Well, at Warwick Farm, it was quite terrific after climbing... Hundreds and hundreds of steps, you got to the roof of the members' grandstand, and you had this vast view. And of course, you had then a second commentator down at Creek Corner, who, back in those in the early days, was Bruce Redhouse. But there were some Sundays when he couldn't commentate; he had a uh, a musical engagement. And uh, in fact, I did a one meeting down there at Creek Corner, and then Graham Howard became a, a constant guy down there. Um, but, uh, yeah, Keith. Keith's comment about uh, commentary positions, he said the only reason that this commentary box is still standing is that the white ants are all holding hands.
1: Just wrapping up now, and it's been a pleasure to catch up with you again. So, Keith, what's the one thing that you would like people to know and remember of Keith Regan?
0: I suppose his professionalism and knowledge... Um, the passion that he put into his work, which just came out in in the finished product. He was a good straight guy. Um, He never got up to any, uh, you know, trying to to win contests or whatever. He just uh, got on and did his job as well as he could do it. And uh, right to the very end, I could still listen to the same voice with the same command of English, Uh, And the same humour as I heard back in the first Warwick Farm meetings in in 1960-61.
1: Will, thank you very much for your time here on Inside Motorsport today.
0: And thank you for your interest. Thanks, Craig.
1: Coming up over the next couple of days, we have some great interviews looking back at Phillip Island with TA2, TCR, and across the Speed Series, we find out more from Motorsport Australia and their plans, along with a interesting chat with Renee Gracie. So keep tuning in to sportradio.com.au for more of the Phillip Island Speed Series actions. Until then, keep smiling and bye for now.
0: Inside Motorsport is produced by Thunder Media for the Community Radio Network.